Are you sitting there as a field of alert stillness or as a heavy person, heavy psychologically speaking, with a lot of accumulation in the mind baggage. Are you home in this now or are you trying to get home? Do you actually feel rooted in the now? Or looking for a better now? Trying to get home. when you're at home, trying to get home. Being at home in the now, that's your home. something up, a glass of water travels to your mouth, in the same way that yesterday we started by pointing out you can pick something up and look at it without the interference of labels, concepts, you can perform an action and be completely present with every, every stage of it's not picking this up is not an inferior now to it reaching my mouth. But this is how most people live. It's Every moment is a means to the next one, and the drinking itself, they're already somewhere else, it's a means to an end. At first, it may only, from time to time, you're able to perform action in that way. Simple actions, perhaps, at first. Where every movement is self-contained, it's 
just it is fulfilling not the end result in the future the idea of being present with what you do is contained in ancient the Japanese tea ceremony for example but it's become formalized now after hundreds of years you just go through the motions it's become purely a technique for many people but originally it's performing an action in which or a sequence of actions in which no action is a means to an end it's already, there's a fullness of attention there and that is means there's a quality in what you do suddenly that is absent when the doing is a means to an end a qualitative difference you can actually feel what what that what quality means when you compare an action that is a means to an end and an action that is done in the state of presence it is a of high quality and if you should be if you were making something as part of your action engaged in some kind of manufacturing something or building something doing some kind of work that creates a structure in whatever field whether it is the arts or writing or anything that you are you're creating something whether physical or otherwise the creation reflects the state of consciousness and the quality will be whatever then is the end result of that present action will reflect presence it will emanate presence whatever is created in the state of presence when it's there and it does not necessarily even a work of art when it's there but it's this is the essence of all art is that all great art emanates something that it still has an energy field of that state of consciousness out of which it came so when you look at great art it has a, a quality that is very hard to define even art critics don't know how to define what is the difference between art and not art and what is the difference between literature and just fiction nobody can exactly say what that is they've tried to write books about that <laughs> so it cannot be grasped or defined it is an ineffable quality that is a reflection of the state of consciousness out of which this form arose and now the beauty of it is you don't need to become an artist because your whole life is this work of art your whole life and the conditions of your life that is your work of art so whether or not you're engaged in making something in one way or another everybody is making something 
the external structures of your life. So this quality is not there when it's a means to an end. So anything that is a lot of what is being manufactured in our civilization is a means to an end. It's not, there's not, it doesn't contain that essence of presence. It's done because it's a means to an end. The end is we need to produce enough to make a profit. So you produce one after another. And so certain things, certain things have labels that say handmade and they are more expensive. But even that, of course, is not a guarantee that there was presence there. If there was, then you can feel it, you can sense it. And even if you were not, if you were just sitting there all day, not doing or making anything, that also you emanate the quality of presence directly then. And that is the highest form of healing. And inevitably, sooner or later, some people would be drawn to you because they sense that. They can't say exactly what it is, but they sense something and so they want to be close to you because it feels good to be close to you. And that's the direct emanation of presence. So you have the indirect emanation through works, something that you do or make or create, and you have a direct emanation of presence. And presence is, and even, I don't want to offend people to whom this word is distasteful, but Presence is the presence of God. <laughs> something shines through this form. This form has become somewhat transparent. And it's just a question of, it's all the same. There isn't my presence and your presence. It's nobody's possession. It's nobody's attainment. There's nobody can, that can claim, can claim anything. I have attained presence. Who are you? <laughs> and so, who are you? And the true answer is, well, I am presence. So, how can I attain presence? <laughs> My presence is greater than yours. Just, doesn't, <laughs> Egos can still, they can sneak in at any stage still. Uh, and then that is, your task is to become a transparency for presence. Not as a future goal. The moment you have a future goal, you, the transparency is actually lost you become, there's a density again, which because future goal implies a mind projection, tri striving towards that now. Can only be transparent now. 
by not identifying with labels and concepts. So what happens collectively in this world, in this country, depends on the degree of presence of consciousness that can come through the seemingly individual human beings. That's why Jesus always said, I'm not doing anything. It's not me. He even said, don't call me good. The evil said, called him. Because that would affirm an ultimate real, a form identity as my ultimate reality. You. What Jesus called the Father is a term he had to use in a patriarchal society so that people would listen to him. Presence would have been too strange, no. <laughs> and to say Dao, a Chinese word, wouldn't have meant anything. <laughs> There is somewhat, there's less identification now with form. This is why there's greater openness collectively to presence. In the past, there was still very great identification with form. And you couldn't have gone anywhere and nobody would have understood a single word if you had not spoken to them through the conditioning, the mental collective conditioning of their particular form, Eastern, whether, whatever tradition it may be. So Jesus had to use the form of the Old Testament terminology, language, to be heard. But now, there's less identification with form, and this is good. You can actually see the truth, the same truth expressed in so many different forms. There are, there's again the danger if you have been associated with one form for many years, it can happen that you become closed to seeing the truth in other forms. Some very strict Buddhists don't want to listen to me because it's not Buddhist enough. And some very strict Christians wouldn't want to listen to me. It's not Christian enough. So before we go on to questions, just one more. The, this transparency is so important. 
that is your task at any moment not to affirm your form identity and perhaps not even to defend your form identity. The often things happen as you move through life and interact with people where your form identity, the psychological form, I'm not speaking this, if your physical form is threatened relatively rarely, directly, but your psychological form of me is very often in every day, somehow, somewhere, at work or at home, is threatened by someone who says something to you. If only you're driving along and another driver shouts something at you. You idiot. But he doesn't say it like that. He does. <laughs> but when you sense then that that comment and the energy behind it is like a blow and it threatens, it shakes your form identity. And deep down, even if you know very well that this is a, a very unconscious person, Deep down, there's the in the the little me says maybe he's right. <laughs> and immediately comes a reactive mechanism in order to repair the injury to your form identity because it's painful to the form, to be injured. Not physically painful, but emotionally painful. And so, you would shout something back. And that repairs that. <laughs> or you would simply, perhaps you're beyond shouting back, but in your mind you would be saying, you unconscious little worm. And that also works. That, uh, <laughs> and in some way you may even be right, but not absolutely. So you have affirmed his form identity as he affirmed yours. And for a few minutes or half an hour or an hour after that, other things will come into your mind that you could have said but didn't say.
and this can be quite interesting, the mind playing it out again and again with increasingly better versions of what you could have said. <laughs> and then you say, why didn't I say that? God, I should have said that. That's so good. <laughs> Or if it's a different situation, and this is a person that you meet regularly, then two days later you meet that person again, the situation is long gone, and then you say that thing that you've worked out in your mind. So there's an interesting thing, but I don't advocate what I'm saying now for people who are, all their lives have been extremely shy and fearful and never said, spoken up and said anything out of fear. For them there are other practices. But not when your form identity is threatened in some way, not to resist that threat, simply allow that. Nothing really has been threatened, just a concept, a mental image. And so somebody says something or shouts and instead of rushing into a repair job, just let it be. You idiot. It happened occasionally that while I was driving that those situations and once or twice the driver was very close and got very confused because he was looking at me and saying something similar and I was looking at him and there was no reacting force, nothing there to react and he got very confused. <laughs> and he shouted the same again because he thought I must be deaf. <laughs> Once when you do that, you suddenly, what at first seems like a weakness, you can sense an enormous peace and power at a very deeper, a deeper level, not the power of me, a deeper power is suddenly there when you don't repair, attempt to repair your form identity, when the world always does things to it, tries to do things to it, or even try to assert it to make it bigger. A typical case is in a conversation or a discussion. Somebody says something which you absolutely disagree with or you know you have to put him right and it becomes a, I know better. And there's enormous energy behind it. And then perhaps in the course of the discussion, it's becoming revealed that this person has certain facts that are showing that your long-held belief is actually not true and then this would be very hard to recognize if you are unconsciously identified with that 
position and keeping your sense of self intact, you would be seeking all kinds of arguments to cover up the truth of what this person is saying because you're not defending the truth anymore. You're defending your mental image, your form identity. This is often the case when you observe when people discuss things, they're defending an a me and they're attempting to assert a me needing to stand out. And another interesting practice then in a discussion when it's not vital that this person should know your opinion, nothing much depends on it and it's just just simply be quiet, but not then going into thought and thinking how spiritual I am because I'm not. <laughs> this is the deeper meaning behind the strange parable of Jesus saying, turn the other cheek, which is all metaphorical, is not to, is the practice of not attempting to repair, to repair your form identities, just non-reaction, and there's enormous strength in that. If you truly needed to say something because a certain situations or course of action depended on it, you would say it, but you're not defending a me, a sense of self. What you say then is in the service of the truth, if it is the truth but not a me that identifies with, its, with what it sees as the truth. And then it feels a little bit as if, as if you were becoming nobody. You're kind of becoming almost invisible when you're not out. And there's an, and it's a strange, it actually feels good, but at first the little me gets uncomfortable with that. And then once you know the depth that is there, when is the end of all fear. This is an aspect of the depths I talked about yesterday within yourself. So a good thing would be, for example, if all the world suddenly thought you were dreadful, and maybe they have some kind of belief about you that you did something that you didn't do, or maybe you did do it, not repairing, not needing to repair that because there's a greater power deep within you than that, than your form. This is contained in the story I've told a few times about the Zen master who lived in a town in Japan and was very highly respected and one day a young girl, 17 year old, gave birth, she wasn't married, she lived next door to the Zen master, she gave birth to a baby and the parents, she was, parents said, what happened, who is the father, this is dreadful, and she said, well, it's the Zen master next door, he did it.
nine months ago when I was visiting him for spiritual counseling, that's, that's when it happened. So they started screaming and shouting and rushing to the Zen master and saying, she just told us what you did to her. And they told everybody in the village and the whole village was, the town was in commotion. They, and then they, the Zen master, when the parents came, sat there and listened. She just told us that you are the father and you did it to her. And he, was, he listened and all he said was, is that so? And they said, yes, and here, here's the baby, you have it, we don't want it, you look after it, it's yours, this is your baby. And he said, oh, is that so? And so he went away, he lost his reputation, nobody came to see him anymore. And for one year, uh, his whole, uh, all his activities were looking after the baby, feeding it. A year later, the girl became a little bit more mature and suddenly confessed to her parents that somebody else was the father, the boy who lived uh, two streets away, and not the Zen master. So the parents became very disconcerted and rushed to the Zen master and said, we're terribly sorry, can you ever forgive us? She just told us that you're not the father. And he listened and oh, is that so? And yes, and we want the baby back now, please. Uh, is that so? And he handed the baby back. And suddenly his reputation was restored. And this is an, a teaching story of, it's a little bit extreme, just as Jesus' parable of turning the other cheek is a little bit extreme, but it's a, it's a teaching story to show the state of non-resistance, inner non-resistance and the power that lies when you contact that state of, live in that state of inner non-resistance. And you see the, the good also that comes of any situation that looks bad on the surface, just as in this teaching story, it looks like a dreadful situation. On the surface, big drama. And the, so the good that comes out of any seemingly bad situation, when you enter the state of non-resistance to that situation. Because any so-called bad situation is to do this. What is that so-called bad? That so-called bad is that some form is no longer surviving as that form. Whether it's a physical form, in which case it is physical death, or whether it is a psychological form of me, or my belief systems that don't survive, or my image of me that doesn't survive, or other people's images of me who don't survive, it is always some form is being shaken and dissolving or dying. This is what is called bad, or the threat at some form, maybe. The, the form is being attacked in one way or another. And when that is not resisted from within, then the form becomes loose, transparent, or dissolves. And whenever a form dissolves, it really it means death. Whenever there is death of any kind, it, it could be a psychological death. In the case of the Zen master, it wasn't death anymore because he had died already psychologically. 
So it was easy for him. There was no longer a form there. There was just a form in other people's minds that was being projected. A, rep a highly regarded Zen master, and that collapsed. If, if those projections had still been feeding his internal mental form, that would have led to great suffering. So it's always when the so-called bad is a form is being threatened or destroyed or dissolving, and it's, there's no inner resistance to that. And that goes death, the ultimate non-resistance to what looks evil. Then we gain inner non-resistance. Externally, certain actions may happen. Inner, an inner state of non-resistance. Do not resist evil. One of the most profound statements. It's about an inner state. It doesn't necessarily mean that if somebody comes at you with a weapon that you don't prevent him from hitting you by but it's it's an inner state so here this is this the secret is this non-resistance and then the transformation of any situation into a deeper good not the good that is between the continuous fluctuations in the world of polarities between good and bad Something is born, is good, something dies, is bad. Deeper, a deeper good. That is even contained in the, the image of Jesus on the cross, which is a, an act of evil, one could say, but at the same time, that there's a depth to it, and it's an archetypal image. A deep truth embedded in it, whether you are a Christian or not, to see that there is a deep truth embedded in that, the archetypal image of it is evil on the su surface and yet there is a deeper good there because of surrender, because of non-resistance. So to, to know the power that is in you whenever that is the case and how any situation is transformed into good. Imagine the situation you dissolve all drama, because all those situations are drama. Some dramas are violent. And that true healing is dissolving the drama through not contributing to drama in any way. And this is what the Zen master did. He never became part of their drama. The whole town was acting out drama, and there he was. Nothing ever happened. Only good came of it, and the good was that this baby, for one year, grew up in his presence, was loved deeply, the best start in life you could imagine, and only good came of it. The girl became conscious, nobody accused, she probably came back to him later, and nothing, no change. See the good that comes in any situation in your life in which you enter the state of non-resistance. It is always to do with now, of course. In the now, the parents come running and say, you did that. That's what, this is the form the now takes. At this moment, 
the parents come in and say, you're the most dreadful person on earth. You did it. Is that so? That's an extreme form. He could also say, no, I didn't do it. Without an inner defense mechanism taking place. I didn't do it. That's how it is. And again, he's not defending or asserting his form identity, simply stating the fact. That would be a slightly less extreme form of the same teaching. But the most extreme is not even to defend yourself verbally, not, not to say nothing. <laughs> but that nothing is the inner, really. And also, it's not always people, situations come. Not resist them as forms that say this situation is bad. And this strengthens the me that complains. You remember we talked about the complaining entity in the head. A favorite device for the egoic entity is to complain about a situation that you find yourself in. Instead of being in a relationship of non-resistance towards the situation which may on the surface justifiably be called bad and then see the good that suddenly emerges and how quickly it actually changes when it's not internally resisted. Non-resistance internally does not always imply that there is no action externally but it is non-reactive action simple action, not action that arises out of, out of a reactive little me, which is fearful action, violent action. So, so this transformation into good of anything that looks bad through that, any situation, amazing, amazing. And it could be that a situation happens and you know you probably only have five more minutes to live. Extreme case of bad. And there's utter and complete yes. And so there cannot be, there cannot not be a deep serenity and peace suddenly filling your entire being and then death comes dancing towards you that's the flowering of consciousness and whether it flowers for the next 20 30 40 years in your life and gradually unfolds or whether it flowers for five minutes it doesn't really matter there's no beyond time that flowering is beyond is, is arises out of the timeless dimension of pure consciousness anyway there's no time and even if in some of you the old mind structures obscure that flowering again as you move back into the world in a few it may happen when a crisis comes or death comes, suddenly it will be there and you'll remember sitting here.
but then it won't be a memory, it will be an alive now, the same aliveness suddenly is there. And this also, uh, the collective situation in this country and in the world in general at this time. Non-resistance. You look at it and see it. situation is an enemy and no person is an enemy. So there's a gentle, what I sometimes describe as a spaciousness, around this whole situation suddenly, when the, even the situation is not an enemy, it is. This collective situation, it is. Suddenly the situation itself is embedded in a spaciousness and gentleness. And we may focus on that again this afternoon, but you do it at any time, the collective situation in the world at this time. Don't make that situation. You may have already relinquished the unconsciousness of making certain groups of people into enemies. But you could be making the situation into an enemy by feeling it is dreadful and it shouldn't be happening. The fact is that it is. It is. So there's non-resistance towards the situation. You see the isness. This is the situation at this time on the planet. And it is as it is. And then, through Allowing that isness and not judging it anymore, a vastness is, reveals itself to you that is deeper than that particular formation, collective formation, which is temporary anyway. One thing that's certain about any situation is this too will pass. And that is healing, which that can be collective healing if a group of people, even think individual, it's all one presence, realizes this truth and holds that space of non-resistance even to the situation. Of course there are no enemies, they're simply un human unconsciousness. And there's the conflict situation. And there's the acceptance. And suddenly, the worst situation is surrounded by peace. And then it, something happens, even to the situation. Not because you want to change it, I have to do something about it. It is deeper than anybody's doing. The one intelligence can then operate, flow through the human form, more fully 
that does. What is the only place where the only sanity there is is through the one intelligence. So we are holding this place where we recognize the suchness of this collective situation. And with that comes compassion. With all involved, all are involved in this violent drama. And perhaps the violence won't be going on that much longer. We don't know that now. All that are involved in this violent human drama, we could call it the earth drama. We are looking upon that situation with acceptance and this means that is, that is also compassion. At first there may be some sadness there because the sadness is still there because you see the forms that have already died in there. Then comes acceptance of the sadness because that also is the suchness of this moment that something in you feels sad about what happened. Yes. So you accept the suchness of that. Then you accept the suchness of that situation, the totality of it. And then the sadness becomes compassion. Now, compassion, in compassion, at the core of compassion, that is not sadness. Compassion arises when you not even resist the sadness that you feel or mourning about death which is a form of pain and that is not resisted either inside yourself you cannot reach the state of compassion if you don't move through that if you don't accept that which arises which is sadness or pain about the situation Yes, and so you go deeper by accepting that is what you feel. And that takes you to a deeper core. And that core that lies, that is the core of compassion, is a core of deep peace. And on the it's hard to talk about this. On the periphery of that deep peace, there may be a lingering sadness. Yes. But deep down, there's a peace and a serenity that many, many people have reported they found spontaneously when they were facing death. And many who actually died were never able to tell us that that's what they found. That serenity and that peace. And that, from there, all healing emanates. That has enormous transformative power to hold that state, to be, to live in that state. It's enormous power. So that is, don't underestimate the effect on the collective consciousness a group such as this can have. And 
simply because collectively we enter that state and hold it, not with any effort, allow it to be. There's the situation, the earth drama, there's a sadness around it, some pain, and through allowing both the external and the internal, the external is the madness of the drama and the violence, the internal is the to some extent, the reaction of the personal self to it. Yes, that's there too. And so it's allowed on both levels, the external and the internal. And only if you allow both levels to be, then that you go deeper to the core. And suddenly you reach through the surrender you reach the serenity, the peace that is the essence of your being and of all beings, the one essence. And knowing that, in effect, in turn, has enormous effect on, even on the world of form. It's only by knowing the formless that something that, that shines through you and then if effect affects even the world of form. So this is perhaps it's no coincidence, there are no coincidences, everything is connected to the totality. The fact that our gathering here this week is taking place at this particular time. And some of you perhaps even doubted before coming here whether you wanted to come here. You may have doubted whether even to look for peace, whether you even have a right in that situation to look for inner peace. Do I have the right to look for inner peace when so many people are suffering? Perhaps you ask yourselves a question like that. And of course, it's not a question of having a right. There is no other way for humanity to become transformed. And so it's not here, not just while we are sitting here as a group, it's also when you go away, you continue to go within and go past the two possible levels of resistance, which is resistance to what is externally and resistance to what is internally, which means you feel bad about feeling bad. You feel sad and then that doesn't feel good, but you get stuck on that level of feeling sad and you have stories in your head about it and you give, you never move beyond it because you feel sad, but you don't want to be sad. You shouldn't be feeling sad. It's acceptance. This is what I feel. This is, that is. 
So in your, as we are doing it here, you do it when you're alone, when you go away from here, wherever you go. Enter that state. Nothing can prevent you from finding that deep core of peace which transforms the world. Nothing can prevent you because there is nothing that you resist. <laughs> if there's nothing that you resist, that means nothing can prevent you from finding it. And if your inner state is turbulent, you notice that your inner state is turbulent and say, there it is. My inner state is turbulent, uh, there I feel the turbulence. That's how it is, there it is, it's there. It is amazing what happens when you don't resist. And so n nothing can stop you from non-resistance. <laughs> And all you might say, you go and suddenly you wake up in the morning and remember all your problems and the dreadful problems of the world and you feel very unhappy and say, this is reality and that meditate, that retreat, that wasn't reality. The television is telling you what reality is. And you get very sad. And after two hours of unhappiness, deep unhappiness, you feel your unhappiness. And, so you, and then you remember your spiritual practice and you say, well, I couldn't possibly find peace. Look how unhappy I am. There's no point in even trying to find peace in that unhappy state. I'm so unhappy. Uh, okay. You're unhappy. That's what is. I'm unhappy at this moment. I'm so unhappy. That's how it is, unhappy. So, let me be unhappy. It's okay to be unhappy. This sounds very weird, doesn't it? Because the very essence of unhappiness is that it's not okay. Something is not deeply not right. And if you then say a seemingly mad statement, I don't mind being unhappy doesn't seem to make sense but there's great power there because it's the end of resistance and the very cause of unhappiness was an enormous amount of resistance <laughs> let me be unspiritual that's the, it's the letting be and there's suddenly there's a a deep, something far greater depth than the little me that thinks of itself of this or that or that even has the sadness there's suddenly the depth is there so isn't it this is so amazing that nothing can stop you <laughs> any condition that is non-resisted will take you there Anything that's not resisted takes you there. Any condition, any situation takes you to peace, takes you to that. <laughs> mm. 
you can find that out. I'm, I'm speaking about this now with reference to large-scale events. You can find it out on a small scale. You're sitting quietly in your room. Enjoying the peace all around you. And suddenly some huge noise starts up outside. Maybe it's one of those... I don't know if they're called pneumatic drills here. In England they're called pneumatic drills. One of the worst noises there can be. How can I be peaceful here? I mean, this just doesn't work. And you can then try a little practice. You listen to that noise and see. There it is. You accept the isness of that noise. And the mind no longer labels it. When you accept the isness, it is. And you begin to listen to it. And there's no longer a me that contracts and says no to it. You begin to listen to it without a no. Mm. Complete non-resistance. And you'll be very surprised what you feel suddenly. And you would, it, even the noise might be transformed and the pneumatic drill might be saying Om, Om. Whether you stay then in that room or not is a, second, a secondary matter. Maybe you move to another, another room where it's more quiet, or you may enjoy staying there and continue listening to the OM. The action that then takes place is secondary. It will be right for that moment. Maybe you will remove yourself, or maybe the moment the, the drill becomes OM, Maybe it stops. So, in some cases, in little cases of acceptance, you may be surprised. Sometimes, in major cases, it happens how quickly a situation changes once you've surrendered to it internally. How quickly it changes. <laughs> and this is why some people say, when they notice that this happens, they say it's, it almost looks as if life were giving a test, a test whether you can surrender or not. It's, this is how it sometimes looks. I don't necessarily want you to believe that. You don't need to believe anything. But it often looks as if life were giving you a little a challenge just to see if you can surrender. Especially you'll get it when you claim that now you have arrived. Occasionally people come to me and I, I love it when they come or they call and come and say, I am liberated now. I'm totally liberated. I know it. And it's wonderful. I love that. I don't say, oh, you're not right. They may well be right. But I often say, 
just wait, let it... <laughs> Give it a few months before you start writing a book about it. <laughs> things. We were going to have questions this morning, but the present moment required something else. So we may have questions this afternoon. <laughs> at the moment, if this is vital at this moment for us to realize that the power that we have, not as we as individual little me's, that the power that there is in consciousness and the power that this group has that each individual has not as an individual but as an opening into the power, the one power so your power is the opening that you can be an opening into that and then it flows through you not as a me that claims anything that I am going to change the world. No, but the world can change through you, so to speak. It's not so much a, a doing as an opening and an allowing. And even non-resistance is not really a doing. One could say it's the opposite of doing. Resistance is doing. Non-resistance is allowing. And so you have strange, you have certain Indian philosophies and teachings that say, and there is no doer, realize that nothing that you do is that you do it. It just happens. Ultimately, it's true, but I don't approach it that way. It looks often when I speak as if you could do something. And that is both true and not true. It must remain a paradox. If we take one position, we are not quite right. If I say, yes, you can do, it's not quite right. If I say, there's nothing you can do, that's not quite right either. You are one with the totality, so anything that you do, obviously, is not separate from the totality. It acts through you. And even the belief that, you, yes, I can change the world. If it's the right, if you realize what that statement means, yes, there is truth in that. If it's not misunderstood, as if me as the little me could do it. But if I, what I perceive as I, which is, in the first instance, is this form, temporary, no, but that becomes a window. Sometimes in groups, people like to arrive very early or when there are talks and they like to sit in the front. And I've sometimes wondered why do they like to sit in the front and they say, because I can feel an emanation there. 
that comes from you and and I first said well then I realized what they meant the emanation is because this form is a window and so the the breeze comes through the opening it doesn't come from the window of course so there's some truth in it. It's nice if you want to sit near an open window where you can feel the breeze. It's, but of course, the real reason why you're sitting there is so that you also become an open window and then the breeze also comes through you. The very fact that you recognize what I metaphorically call breeze, the very fact that you can sense it means that it's already in you. Otherwise you wouldn't even sense that. That in you which senses the deep peace, the emanation of peace that comes from another person, the emanation of love that comes from what looks like another person, that in you that is sensitive to that, feels that, responds to that, is the same. It is the same love and peace that you see coming from that form. That which draws you temporarily perhaps to that form is the same the same in you. It recognizes itself. That's why it wants to be close to that form. There's still the danger that the mind misinterprets it and thinks there's something essential to this form, to this person, but that is never true. It's only because that person is transparent that this person, so-called person, can reflect something to you that is your essential reality. The mind can construct now an, another identity for that, a form identity for that transparency. <laughs> and say, and you could then worship a form identity, not realizing why, you, why you're doing that. It's precisely because there is no, there is a transparency to the form <laughs> and feel, so you could, a so-called guru, I'm not a guru, well, who knows, but... <laughs> There's a, it's both can be very helpful and can be a hindrance to finding yourself. If understood rightly, the function of a spiritual teacher, if understood rightly, can be a great help. If understood wrongly, can become a hindrance because it can prevent you from finding you because then you see it all out there in this great divine being. What about you? And so those are people who are totally attached to the form of their teacher and he or she is the greatest and there's no other like him or her. Well, it's, it, that's nice, but what about you? What is your reality? Are you not, is you not your, or your essence divine? So it's, use that wisely, the spiritual teacher, and when you listen to tapes of this teacher, a temporary form, of course, uh, or videos, use all those things wisely it's 
whenever the truth is recognized as if it were coming from out there, it's who recognizes it? What is it in you that recognizes it? It's the truth. It, who is it that senses and feels and recognizes the emanation of peace or love? It's the peace and love in you that sees itself. Perhaps more clearly than as yet you can sense it in yourself, but it's the response is there. And so it's good sometimes to, when you sense that, you let go of the form of the teacher. There are some people who have a photo of this form, <laughs> and at first I thought that was weird, because why would they want to have a photo of a face? And then the, some people said, well, when I look at it, uh, I suddenly feel peaceful and I become present again. There's a, there's a presence when I look at it. And then I looked at my photo and I said, yes, it, it can work, perhaps. <laughs> as long as they realize they are not looking at this form, they're looking really at themselves. The essence of what they're looking at is themselves. And what, why, how, how can a photo work? It's a piece of paper. I don't quite understand that. But on the other hand, a piece of paper, of course, is alive too. It's molecules, it's an energy field. So, if it works, but then once you sense that and you see presence arises and the peace that comes with presence is there, look away from the photo. Don't get attached to the form too much. Using the form as a reflector of your own reality, which then can emerge more fully. Sitting here also, it draws out presence in you. That's the main reason that consciousness that we call presence, that is not to do with the conditioning that lies on top of it, is drawn out as you sit here. It responds, it recognizes itself. And so that's the, the birth of presence, one could say. In many of you, the birth has already happened. And so it's simply a, an intensification of that. And that is beautiful. And so this, this form has a temporary function. At some point, it will pop like a soap bubble. And it doesn't matter. So using it wisely, and whenever you see it in another, you sense it. Where do you sense it? Where is it? Here. Nobody is more divine, closer to God, than you. Nobody is closer to the one, to the source, to God, than you. The only difference may be that you don't know how close you are.
You can also gaze into the eyes of a loved one, a son, a daughter, a partner, a parent. You gaze into their eyes and in this, there is a stillness while you look. You look at each other, not through mental concepts, not even as this is my son or this is my partner or this is simply presence and you look and this, there's a love there and a peace. Any person that you love, look into their eyes and where is the love? In you. And what is that love? If it is love, it's not the egoic clinging that is called love, but the true love is knowing the other as yourself. Feeling that oneness. Not just, at first it might be a deep connectedness, but when you look more closely, that connectedness is more than connectedness, it's actually a oneness. And knowing that, sensing that, is love. So when you are with a partner, it can be, could be that you, you're beyond mental formations when you're with that partner. There's just the love. And then close your eyes, and even if the form of the partner isn't there, the essence of that love is there, which is the same essence in that person. So you, you be, everyone ultimately, whoever you meet, when you dwell in that state of connectedness, which is more than connectedness, oneness, you're always meeting yourself. And at first you may only realize that when you are with a spiritual teacher who emanates very clearly your own essence back to you, so to speak, then it's very clear then that you are meeting yourself. And then you meet others, it may also be when you truly love another human being, it is also easier to feel that you are meeting yourself, the essence of oneness. And then you meet many others where it's not so clear yet, <laughs> because there is all kinds of stuff that cover up the essence in that person and perhaps a reaction to that which covers up the essence in that person may bring back a little bit of covering up in yourself so you can't feel it but as it intensifies you can actually look through whatever covers up the divine reality of that human being, you look through it. You see it, but it's not of interest to you. Whatever that person does, whatever the, the conditioning, mental, emotional conditioning, the little me entity is, is not of much interest to you. And you see it, but you look through it. And you, you can you sense the essence of that person and love them no matter what they do or say or think they are because as you love them as yourself 
So you look through the veil of illusion, an illusory identity, and love each human being because you recognize them as yourself. And then you love your neighbor as yourself. Your neighbor is everyone you meet. There are no conditions to that love. I will only love you if you become more conscious. <laughs> and of course, Jesus said, if you love only those who do good to you, anybody can do that. I don't think that's the exact translation, but... <laughs> and said, love even those who seem to be doing wrong to you or plotting evil or whatever. That What he means is, because you can't try to do that, that Christians haven't fully understood the, the, the depths of that statement, so they said, okay, I have to love this dreadful person. Uh, I'm going to try. I'll see if I can love all my neighbors. And it never quite worked. Uh, and in fact, it often had a, a counterproductive effect because in your mind you created an image of a Christian, good Christian that I am, who loves his neighbors. And then you were even able to acknowledge, unable to acknowledge in yourself the hatred that you felt towards your neighbor and covering it up. And then it comes out through very unconscious things that you say or do and deny even that. No, I didn't do that. Uh, and it can go so far as to inflicting violence on others. <laughs> so, what does, what does he really mean when he says even those who... It means looking through the layer of illusion that pretends to be a person and not making, as I pointed out yesterday, not making human unconsciousness into a, an identity for that person. Then you get stuck in the wall of unconsciousness and when you've constructed an identity for another person out of the movement of unconsciousness, you get you get drawn back a little bit more into your own illusory form identity. You have to free everyone from that. It's always reciprocal. You construct an illusory identity for one other person in this world and then you're tra trapped to some extent yourself. So human interaction is a great practice, spiritual practice. It's the very ground where it all happens, spiritual practice. So using the teacher wisely,
recognizing yourself no more the essence of who you are Buddha. Buddha is a beautiful image. He sits there. <laughs> and of course, it's not really an image of a person. Nobody knows what the Buddha looked like. And there were hundreds of years after he died, for hundreds of years there were no Buddha images. They came much later but it's an inner state, it's a pointer to an inner state. And there you see the peace. And where's the peace? Here. And if there's non-peace, non what do you do? There's the peaceful Buddha and here's the unhappy me. Let me be unhappy then. Okay. Unhappy. Unhappy. There we go. Transformation happens. Something you can do with reference to, it's not really a doing, but language is like that, with reference to the collective events in the world at this time. You hold the situation in your consciousness. You contemplate it. Allow it to be. Feel what you feel about it, if you still feel. It could be that when you hold that situation, you may already no longer be generating sadness. It's possible that you can go directly from acceptance of the situation into peace. Or you may go indirectly holding the situation, not, not in total acceptance perhaps. Some sadness arises, some pain arises. Then you accept that, and then you go into peace. Do that a few times during the day. And also, uh, somebody has told tonight, the president will speak. I don't know whether you are going to listen to it. I don't believe there's a TV set in this. Omega, which usually is a good thing. If you listen to it or watch it somewhere on the radio, then while you listen or watch, or if you don't at that time perhaps particularly, hold that spaciousness. That doesn't say there's a dread, there's something dreadfully wrong with this world. No. 
hold that spaciousness, the suchness of this, the isness of this. That's all that's needed. It's almost, I'm doing this, it's almost as if here were the situation and the turbulence of it, and here you are holding it in a gentle embrace. It's a vast embrace. Because in a deeper sense, whatever happens is there's nothing outside of you. Whatever happens somehow is part of you. There's ultimately nothing outside. All unconsciousness that you see is all part of you. There's nothing outside of you, really. Don't try to understand that mentally. And so you can, yes, actually you can hold even a vast situation like that in a much greater vastness. And, and there is gentleness and there is compassion. I'm, this attitude this, of holding this gesture is I'm doing this to show you an inner state, but to do it can also help to remind yourself of what it, what it is like. There's something perhaps feminine almost about it. It is so, and you see it sometimes in statues of female representations of the divine, is often in that of Mary or Kuan Yin, often is that gesture of gentle holding. <laughs> 